Ladies and gentlemen of the Open Drama UK company, this is your half hour call. Open Drama UK is proud to present a monthly podcast related to theatre and drama education by people in the know. Put your headphones on, grab a cup of tea and get ready. Uh, Hello and welcome to this month's half hour call for Open Drama UK. And this time we're going to be talking about something that is very important to those of us who record podcasts. We're going to be talking about the voice and how it operates for teachers. And I've got with me today um, Janet Shell, who is amongst a huge range of different things that she does. Um, she's a qualified singing teacher and voice coach. Um, she is somebody who was a teacher who decided that she wanted to explore the performer in her and became an opera singer. Um, It is now spending some of her time uh, helping teachers improve their their quality of voice um, and how they use their voice in the classroom to support them at that time. So we're going to be talking about that today. So, Janet, would you like to tell us a little bit about how you came to start working in that field? Hi, well, really lovely to be here and hello to everybody. Um, Yes, so I, as you say, was a classroom teacher. That's what I did straight from school. And I went to teach training college, did my B.Ed degree and then went into teaching. Now, the other thing is that I was always a bit of a a singer as well, although I'd not had any voice training at that point. During my uh, teacher training, I actually started to have singing lessons. And then, so I ran that alongside my uh, teaching for a while. I got my first job, I was down in Buckinghamshire and uh, I, I taught for about five years. But during that time, I also went up to London and had some singing lessons at uh, one of the conservatoires. And so overall, I then made the decision that I wanted to explore, as you say, the options of becoming a singer, which I did. When I left teaching and went into singing, some of my friends used to say to me after a while, how can you sing a whole opera and still be able to talk at the end of it or go to the pub? And I went, well, hey, this is what singers tend to do anyway. Um, But in fact, what that really made me start to think about the way I was using my voice and what I'd learnt about voice production, if you like. I never had a problem in the classroom when I was there and my voice was loud enough. What I didn't realise really was that probably during that time I was straining it, but there was no vocal arm in teaching in that period. So nobody sort of said, you know, you need to look out for your voice there just in case. And it was many years later, which I'll explain in a minute, that actually that came back to bite me slightly. So I went on and I had this um, singing career and I still sing to this day. But during the time... I suddenly started to feel that my voice was not quite operating the way that I would like it to. Ultimately, I discovered that I had vocal cord hemorrhaging. Now, that doesn't just go away. You need an operation to sort that out. And singers and voice operations is a little bit of a, oh, gosh, what's going to happen here? However, I did put my faith in the surgeon who was a specialist in that field. And after that, I started to work with a speech therapist or even before it, I'd been working with a speech therapist. And I started to think about the fact that when I was singing, I was using um, a a technique that enabled me to, to produce sound and to produce it well. And yet when I was speaking, I would get hoarse very quickly. So we started thinking about putting some of the information that I'd learnt from singing into my speaking voice. And that helped me develop my programs to help other people. I'm happy to say that um, 
my singing voice, uh, once the operation had happened, sorted itself out. I did some rehab and then I've done some of my best singing in the years since my operation. But it's made me incredibly mindful of my voice. And the guy who did the operation said, you know, I think you've had this for many, many years. I don't think it's a sudden thing. And in now I look back and think, do you know what? I think I got it or it started at the time that I was actually a teacher because I didn't have any information. Nobody pointed out how I was using my voice all the time. So you use it for your work. And then it's not like an instrument where you put it away at the end of the day. You carry on using it in your home and then at weekends. Maybe you go out and have a party at a weekend if you're lucky, you know, or you might go to a concert and you yell along, you know, or you're yelling for the artist or going to a sports match and, you know, uh, shouting your team on. And then you go back into the classroom on a Monday morning and expect your voice to be working just as effectively as it would any other day of the week. And yet you've already compromised it by the amount of use that you've used. So this kind of set me going and um, I set myself up about 15 years with Talking Voice and I now work around the country and obviously during lockdown I, I took a lot of that online which has also given me a different arm to, to my activities if you like. And I go around and I work with teachers specifically on vocal health and then it extends, as we'll talk about, a little bit further into other aspects. I mean, is it you find that when you meet teachers that they're talking about things like losing their voice? Because that, in my experience, that's the sort of thing that, that leads people to, to my door is that they say, well, you never seem to do that. Um, and there is recognition of the importance of vocal communication for teachers because most of what we deliver is through our voices not just what we're saying but also the way we're saying it um, and of course drama teachers particularly are subject to that because most of what we do is the spoken word um, do you find that that's the thing that brings people to you that they're saying well I'm, I'm losing my voice I'm I, my voice is painful yeah, absolutely. So I think that for most people, it, it's the voice isn't something that you pay any attention to on a day to day level unless you are using it and then it doesn't feel quite right. Um, I was uh, thinking, you know, as a singer, I wake up in the morning and I only have to go <clears throat> and I know if my voice is OK. But, you know, you're unlikely to do that as a teacher, even though you are using your voice more probably than I would as a singer. So that is exactly what brings uh, people to me. Or sometimes people will come and say, I have, you know, some of my providers will say, we have got a few people who are a cause for concern here. And voice is a very easy one, actually, to pick up on. But it's further down the line by the time you pick up on it, because because as a singer, I would then immediately do something about that or make a decisions and involve strategies that actually allow me to look after my voice that day, whether it's drinking more water or whether it's just being um, quieter, uh, not speaking quite as much, organising separate activities with students where I don't have to talk all the time over the top, you know, alongside the to the main class. Um, so I think that people then do start, they go either my voice hurts or I'm hoarse at the end of the day or the week or, you know, and of course it's masked by the fact that if you get, you only have to work for about five or six weeks and you get a week off. 
And in that week <laughs> off, <laughs> in that week off, amazingly, your voice will recover. And at the end of the week, you think, oh, no, I must have made that up. My voice is fine now. And it's this lack of awareness that worries me in the teaching profession because um, I perceive almost that it's getting worse rather than better. Mm. I think that's I think that's true, because I think we have a tendency to um, over exploit our capacity for our voices to to make a difference without also understanding that it is part of a package yeah. that, that your delivery has everything to do with how comfortable you are and how at ease you are in, in the space you're in. And that will affect things like how you manage your classroom. If you are tense in your voice, then it is likely to be a tense situation in your classroom. <laughs> exactly. Um, if you can't make yourself heard or understood, then you are struggling before you even begin. And I think that those things need to be a bit more reflected on um, so that teachers can access all areas of their voice and they can draw on the resources that we have with us. Yes. Uh, would you say would you say that that um that you're most that most often people come to you from that negative point of view though that they come from saying um the, these things are bad you're not doing these things correctly well i think there's a kind of inevitability about that because people will come along because it's the first time they've noticed something and then it creates an awareness. And then actually that first bit of awareness might make them think, hmm, actually that happened last week as well. And after this particular lesson, and actually I wasn't feeling very happy that day. And I've noticed my voice, actually, look back, it was really, I struggled with it that day. So I think there's a kind of reflective awareness that can happen um, once you've become aware of the initial thing. Thankfully, some people, um, do come to me who are a little bit more aware and who will say we would like to provide something really positive for our trainees and we think that you know having talked to somebody or looked a bit online that that working with the voice and some of the things that you're suggesting and the courses that you do the sessions you do they they seem to have a lot of positive commentary and so we'd love to have something positive for our teachers and of course, it's going to be hugely beneficial for them, totally. But I think more often than not, you're right, there is people are coming from a, um, a slightly less uh, positive viewpoint, almost because they think, well, actually, we don't know what to do about that. The other thing about voices, you will be aware, is that because we all have one, everybody thinks they have a take on it. Yeah. And so it's like <laughs> the instrument that everybody plays. Yeah. So everybody goes, well, I know what to do. I've looked up. You just have to drink more water. I'm going, mm, well, there is slightly more to it than that. That was a good start. But you know what? As you say, uh, Alison, that when people come along and they um, realise that, that they're emotionally in a state where maybe they're feeling cross about something or um, uncertain, that mirrors itself in the voice and because if you're not aware of that as an actor you learn to be aware of that don't you actors yeah. have to learn about how to do it the other way around they have to actually 
show in their voices the emotion that they're feeling, especially if they're doing a radio broadcast. However, their body will mirror it as well. And uh, one of the things I work on really is that you cannot divorce what your body is doing from how your voice is manifesting itself. But listen, there are messages that people pick up from our vocal quality and you will hear tension in somebody's voice even if they've got a smile on their face if their teeth is slightly gripped and their jaw is slightly locked and actually you'll hear that and at some subliminal level you go oh that that smile isn't the truth of what that person is is feeling should i be worried mm. do you think it's important for people to understand kind of the mechanics of how the voice works I mean, how much of that would you say would be important for somebody who's trying to think about improving their voice to know? Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting one. I do do a bit on the mechanics of voice just because I think it's quite interesting. It's one of those things that you can't see. So if you're working in sport and you're doing tennis, you can see how the muscles are working to an extent and, and that will help improve your your strokes. But in, in the vocal department, if you can't, it's a bit of a mystery. So I do actually show videos in my session, which, you know, have, have a reaction of how the voice works and what it looks like and what's going on down there. And actually how many vocal cords you have, because people, if I ask the question, how many vocal cords do you have to anybody in the street? They have to think about that. They don't necessarily know the answer. So... This Go on, what is the answer? <laughs> Do you want me to tell you the answer? Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you, okay. you have two vocal folds, okay? Right. Two. two they're all mus they're muscles. But, you know, I have a, a slide where I put up different, uh, I do a quiz with people and I put up different versions. I put four and 11 up there. And the number of people that are just really not sure, it's the, it's the last question in my quiz. And it's the one that stumps people the most. And then I show them what that actually looks like. I also think it's one of those areas that when you have a diagram of it, it doesn't really, you can't get your head around how it's working. So I like to show films that have been filmed yeah. of vocal yeah. cords, including my own. Um, so I do do a little bit on that, just because there are people who, in my courses, who will absolutely love that piece of information. But I have to say to you that knowing all that about the voice does not mean that you're a better protagonist in using it. And I will often say to people, look, at the end of this, you may not know, you, I might not make you a better speaker, which is slightly alarming perhaps, by the end of this session, what I will make you is much more aware and give you the tools so that you can go on to develop being a better speaker. And is, is that the important part of it, is that you've got to have the tools and then you yourself can, can do the work? Of course, really. For, for you as an individual? Yes, definitely. If you, you know, I can give, I, I could be prescriptive about what I do. And I could say, if you do X, Y, Z, then you will automatically be uh, a more efficient speaker. And to an extent, that's sort of true. But uh, that's really a one, that's just the first level. The, the next level is actually how, because with voice, we can be very mindful of it for five minutes, if we're not used to doing that. Then we go back to our old habits. So, for example, I will time people as to how fast they read a passage. 
and they'll start off being quite deliberate about it because they know I'm timing them. And then, and you may have this experience as well, after a while, they'll then go back to doing their normal kind of ch chatty below. Well, actually, that, that kind of close level chat isn't appropriate in the classroom because you need to be projecting your voice. Therefore, you need mm. to have the vowels need to be slightly longer because your vocal cords are going to be together slightly longer because of that. So it's these kind of little extra bits of knowledge and why we do them that then enable people to make choices under different situations because the voice is reacts to different moments within a classroom. You know, you will have a moment of adrenaline rush if suddenly something kicks off in your classroom and that will immediately set your muscles into tension. It will produce uh, adrenaline. That has an absolute effect on the voice. And if you don't know then how to come back from that so that you can deal with the situation, you are immediately in a compromised situation vocally. So I, I can't give you a prescription if you like, but I can give you loads of situations and loads of ideas and lots of tools and tell you how to learn to pick out the right one for the right situation, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense because the other thing that you seem to be hinting at there when you know when you talked about the rush of adrenaline when something isn't quite going well yeah. that there is a strong connection between your confidence with your ability to communicate using your voice and things like behavior management and then that leads on to your comfort in the room and therefore connected to teacher well-being um you know i think i think we've all been in the room we either ourselves or with other people when we've seen um, teachers who are expressing themselves poorly um, perhaps not necessarily with what they're saying but the way that they're saying it you know the teacher that is is always at full volume mm -hmm. and is just trying to drown the students out the teacher who is um, just hesitant about it the teacher who can't get to the end of a phrase because they don't have enough breath to support it and it's not that they're bad teachers and it's not that they, they don't know their subject. It's just they don't have the actual technical ability to do it. And those of us who, who have studied drama and who will have been encouraged to look after our instruments, to use a Stanislavskian phrase, will feel more comfortable about that than perhaps some of our colleagues in other, uh, in other faculties, in other departments. And you know, there are things to be learned from that. Do you, do you find that that's one of the things that people come to you when they're, they're talking about the voices, that there is this connection to the to behaviour management and how they appear in the classroom? Yes, I mean, I didn't set out to be a behaviour <laughs> management expert, you see. This is the thing, and I, I still wouldn't call myself that. I don't think anybody does. <laughs> no, well, you know, there are some people who, uh, who make a, you know, a life out of doing that. But actually... Um, there's a sort of inevitability about it, isn't it? If you think about the situation, you're in a room with sometimes 30 people who don't want to be there, and it is your persuasion to keep them in that space, your ability to communicate, to draw them in, to help them really start to engage with the subject and engage with you, because they're not going to engage with the subject unless you are delivering something in a way that allows that to happen. And inevitably, behaviour management is 
well, yes, your voice, your confidence, you see, it all pays back on each other. So how you stand, the messages that you're giving out, as I say, with your voice. And if your voice is slightly on edge or it's hesitant, immediately the collective people in front of you, the class as a collective, if you like, will you know they'll individually be making assessments about you but actually collectively that's how you will feel their response so they'll start to fidget if they're a bit bored and and if you don't pick up on that the next you see it's all about awareness the next mm. minute you have lost them and then the fidgeting gets worse blah 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 there's a thing called the lombard effect in the classroom uh, which it was by a guy called Etienne Lombard, who's a Frenchman actually, who noticed that we actually raise our voices in response to the noise around us, to put it simply. So you, a good example of that is if somebody's got their, their pods in and then you ask them a question and they only hear you in the distance. So they talk very loudly to talk above the noise that they've got in their ears. That's, that's the Lombard impression, you know, there straight away. But that happens in the classroom too. And people are not really aware of it happening until it's got to quite a loud level sometimes. Mm. And there's that classic thing, isn't there? You're always going, right, thank you very much, take the level down. And then you start all over again. So look, behaviour management is, a, I'm just going to say it's a byproduct, but perhaps I don't mean that. I think that we set out the behaviour management simply by the way that we are in the classroom by the way that we communicate, which inevitably involves both the voice and the body language that is attendant to that. And voice and body are very closely connected. You know, you can't divorce those two from yeah, each other. True. I mean, I think the, 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 the reference to the lumbar effect is, is interesting because I think it's something that uh, as drama teachers, we are very much invested in and it's one of the things that confuses people about when they come into a room full of people who are doing any kind of performing arts is that it's a noisy place but there is a difference between the quality of noise when there is creativity going on and the quality of noise when there is chaos going on and that's that's part of it isn't it it is. Well, I was a music teacher, you see, so I had exactly the same thing. So my mm. room was, was often quite noisy. It didn't mean, I always say that, you know, noise in a classroom does not mean that there isn't learning going on. You can have a silent classroom and there still isn't much learning going on. So that's not the indicative um, thing, you know, that's not the thing that will tell you whether learning is going on. And yet it's one of the things that in teacher training, it's often, you know, you're encouraged to have a quieter classroom. Of course, it's it's easier to talk in a, in a quieter classroom and to give instruction or do whatever else you're doing. But noise does not necessarily mean there isn't learning going on. But that goes back to what we're saying about how you use your voice. Yes. If you are using your voice appropriately, then you don't need to be afraid of having noise in your classroom if it's the right kind of noise because you can still control it you can still make yourself heard whereas if you are afraid that you're not going to be heard because you you have concerns about your voice then you are going to want an absolutely silent classroom um, and all the all the enforcement of that and all the effort that that requires is all part of 
of the, the struggle that you might face. And I am aware that there are um, there are teachers out there for whom that is the ideal, that mm. they want to have a silent classroom. I would hate it, absolutely hate it, because I'm, I'm I, I suppose it's the drama teacher in me, that I want I want to hear those conversations. I want to be able to look at young people engaging with each other. But I think they too need to be aware. <laughs> of, I'm going to use Lombard effect a lot now. <laughs> no, no, you're, you're, you're getting out of control. That's the Lombard effect. Um, uh, and, you know, the, the, the noise rises because they're very excited. Um, but you can't control that with just getting louder. There have to be other things you can do. I had a session with a, uh, a teacher trainer who was talking about behaviour management. He said you had to avoid being a steam train and that whole shh, shh, shh <laughs> thing that, that some teachers do because it's singularly ineffective. Yes. You know, you make your signals clear, but you can only make those signals clear if you have the, the confidence and the power behind your voice to make it happen. Yes, and, you know, one of the things I will talk about is um, is the idea of acting as if... And I think that in order to gain confidence, sometimes you can take on the mantle of what the best teachers you've ever seen, what it looked like, what it felt like to be in their presence. And then act, imagine that you were them, maybe you're a drama teacher like this, you know, <laughs> imagine, the, imagine being that. And actually the really interesting thing is that if you then, so I, I go into a, a room and I always assume that we're going to get on very well and the lesson's going to go swimmingly. Now, that's not to say that I haven't done the preparation work. I'm not saying that at all. In fact, I probably over-prepare things. But I then give it, I then assume that I'm going to be able to teach what I want to teach and that everything is going to go well and that people, and I'm going to say something that often comes up, that people will like me. And I think this is one of the things that teachers dread is that, that somehow there'll be a collective not liking of them even before they've opened their mouths. And that I think some teachers go into the space and think that they've got a fight on their hands in order to get the students on their side. Mm. Whereas in fact, that isn't the case at all. And, it's, and you have the power, it's within you to make that happen. So I think that sometimes if you're feeling a little shy or a little uncertain, if you can be really brave and just imagine what it's like to be the teacher that you want to be and walk into the space or, or you know, be in the space and have the, the students arrive in and then, and then continue in that process, it's actually amazing how that will change the quality of your voice for a start. And then you will gain the confidence as you go through. I'm not saying this is the only way to get confidence, you understand. But it's part of an approach that could be missed, I think, sometimes. Mm. I think it's also the flip side, because if you if you talk to students who are often disruptive, they will say things like, oh, well, I'm not going to behave there because that teacher doesn't like me. Mm. And the only evidence they've got for that is the way that they have been spoken to or the perception that they have when they come into the room that the teacher immediately pokers up, not because they don't like them, but because they are anticipating the fact that they might, they might be problematic yeah. and it breeds itself. So if you go in with a smile in your voice 
and a bit of energy, and then sometimes that, that can be offset. Not always, nothing ever works 100% of the time, but if there is that element of it that if you feel positive about something and the students think that you're going to be positive about something, and very often you're picking them up with the easy handle and that's all connected into the way this you sound the way you present yourself the way you deliver well it builds on that as well as so you're mm. saying you know so once you've got that going initially it might be a, a very small thing to do it's a small step to take but actually you know from little acorns it grows and grows and develops and suddenly you find that you have got that relationship with your students. I always remember very early, well, no, probably about the second year of teaching, I had a particularly different student in quite a big class of about 36 teach for music. Can you imagine the noise in that? <laughs> and, um, and eventually I had to actually resort to sending her out of the room and going to, you know, getting some senior management involved. And then, of course, I had to face her the next lesson. And I mm. remember being a little bit anticipating problems. And then something in me told me to just start each lesson with a clean slate as well and, and not bring my anxieties and my worries into the session, to leave them at the door and to assume again that things were going to be okay. I'm not saying that I was ignoring that there might be something that could go wrong. But at the same time, I was didn't have it in my sight lines and therefore only noticed that. Do you think it's important for young people to have some education in how to look after their voice as well? I mean, we've talked a lot about teachers, but what about the students themselves? I do. Well, actually, I think what is great is when I do my sessions, often a lot of people will say to me at the end, oh, I'm going to go away and use some of these exercises with my X, Y, Z, with my classes. And I will, you know, I will say to people, do do give your students some of this information because the voice is your, grows with you. It's one of the things that, that changes as you as you go through into maturity. So the vocal cords actually lengthen. And in boys, um, uh, they lengthen uh quick quickly at some times which is why you get the voice change uh, and the testosterone and all that um so voices are come out in all shapes and sizes and as they are as it's growing and changing you have to learn to manage it even girls have a voice mm -hmm. change but it's just that it's not so evident so there will be all sorts of things around voice that young people could learn and could understand a it would make them feel a lot more confident and and assured about reassured about things that are that may be going on for them particularly for the boys but in any case when they come to do who knows what their roles they're going to have to take in future life they may end up being somebody that has to be has to stand up and deliver at conferences to people and if they learn these skills when they're at school, then they will automatically start to take that, that information into their adult life. And actually, it might even give them the confidence to apply for a role that they might never have thought they would apply for because it involves some public speaking. So it's not just the health of the voice, it's actually how you use your voice, the confidence associated with it, the language skills, the language you choose to use. That's a whole other area that I that I talk about, because um, 
it's it's a symbiotic thing that goes on in the classroom with with te- with teachers and students if you as a teacher are using your voice well and using effective language um you are you are modeling to your students as well and so they will therefore if they're engaged with you they will then perhaps start to copy you to an extent that's what voice is is about it's about you you do tend to copy other people and their language style and so it's it's a sort of again it's another building block that can happen but definitely you know students are always losing their voice like like teachers are wouldn't it be great if we could just give them some of these skills as well? Top three tips. What three things would you say to somebody if they're thinking about looking after their voice or improving their, their vocal technique? What would you what would you be your recommendation? OK, well, first of all, I mean, um, we have uh, mentioned it slightly, but I would look at your hydration levels because the vocal area does need to be kept moist. And when you drink water, it doesn't go anywhere near your vocal cords. So your vocal cords are the last thing that gets any water. So first of all, um, making sure that you're not constantly dry throat, which then means (coughs) clearing your throat or, (coughs) you know, um, coughing a lot because you are bringing your vocal cords together. There are no nerve endings on your vocal cords. Thank goodness, because otherwise we'd be tickling ourselves every time we spoke. So, you know, it worked. They work internally like your liver does, like other things you don't feel work. But it does need some help. And we most of us are underhydrated. So if if I know that sounds like a very simple thing to say and an obvious thing to say, but the reason it comes out like that is because it is one of the top things. My next thing would be just to think about your posture, actually, because if you are slumped over and I'm sitting down talking this and I'm constantly <laughs> sitting up, do you know what I mean? Your rib cage is kind of compromised a bit and, and your breathing generally is. Breath is the fuel for the voice. So actually thinking about your your breath and your posture sort of as one thing will definitely make a difference. So next time you walk into a room full of people, if you want to have, if the first thing that comes out of your mouth, you want it to be strong, take a moment, take a breath in. Most people don't think about breathing in before they speak. They just launch into speaking. But when you're going to be doing it at distance and in front of a group of people, just take some breath in first, sort of feel it go down through your throat and make sure that your posture is upright enough, your shoulders are wide enough, posture's upright enough for the sound to carry. But do watch that you don't stick your chin up because if I talk to you now and then I put my chin up, you can hear the difference in my voice. It actually cuts off the bottom part. And the third thing I would say is get informed actually find out about the voice and and really one of the best ways of doing that is to have somebody like myself come along and engage you for a few hours in a session i can tell you loads about not just the voice but about how you can communicate what your body language is doing putting it all together putting the whole package together it can be very i have to say that if you're reading about voice 
it can be very dry and it can, I don't mean your voice is dry I mean the whole thing can be a little <laughs> bit academic can't it you know it can and be quite scientific, quite scientific. Stuff I've read is quite scientific exactly so I can bring somebody like me it doesn't have to be me but of course I'd love it if it was um can bring all that together and I love collaborating with other people as well and delivering um sessions where people have fun because let's face it we know that people learn the most when they're having fun and don't realize they're learning that's true that's absolutely true and i think that's a a great note to, to end on so if any of you are listening out there and you think actually i could really use some help then all you've got to do is get in touch with open drama we'll connect you up with uh, janet and i'd just like to thank janet for what's been a really interesting session so thank you that's great thank you for listening make sure you subscribe so you don't forget to join us next month for more content conversations and cpd in the meantime have a look at our website follow like and tag us on all social media platforms until next month